Over the last two weeks, we first looked at John's prologue to this letter, where we were discussing the eternal life that has been made manifest to the world. After that, last week, we were looking at three diagnostic tests of fellowship with God, and we were looking primarily at our attitude to sin. During that time, we mentioned that what prompted or precipitated this letter that John was writing was false teaching. Particularly in view was the false teaching that we have no need to live a certain way before God, even if we say that we have fellowship with God. That was the false teaching that was addressed. But correcting false teaching isn't the only or primary theme of this book. Though John spends much of his time responding to these claims made by the false teachers, as we went through last week, we were hearing, he who says, or if we say, all of these claims were made by the false teachers. That isn't the primary or sole theme of the book. The primary or sole theme, the overarching theme of this book, is so that believers may know that they have eternal life. These false teachings that were confronting the believers at this time served as a backdrop for John to reassure believers that they indeed had eternal life. It's almost as though he uses this malady that was confronting the church to demonstrate several reasons why he thought the Christians there were well. Or put differently, in the midst of these great evils that were occurring, John seeks to help the body of believers and indeed us to know that we have eternal life. And our portion of the text in verse 3 begins with this consoling idea. It says, we may know that we have come to know him if we follow, if we keep his commands. Or put another way, keeping God's commands assures us that we've come to know God. This statement summarizes the verses that follow up to verse 6. And what John has primarily, primarily in view is asking the question of us, do we know God? Do we know the Lord? That's the first question that he asks of us. And then the second question he asks of us is, how do we know that we know the Lord? That is a summary of what John is trying to accomplish here. He's trying to get us to see, do you know God? Do you know the Lord? Does your profession that you know the Lord ring true? And how, how do you demonstrate this in your life? How do you show that you actually know God? There's a tendency in our lives to simply presume the answer to the former question is yes. The answer to do we know the Lord, we simply say yes. After years of professing Christianity, it's like an uncontested fact. It's like, of course, of course I know the Lord. We, we've spent years of gaining greater and greater theological clarity. We spent years of having, from time to time, encounters with God. So at the end of the day, this becomes almost a casual response. We say, as easily as we see the sky is blue, yes, we know the Lord. And in a sense, that's fine, but we can't, John doesn't afford us this same lightness in our speech, he wants us to consider, he wants us to be confronted with whether we know the Lord. He doesn't presume that's a fact because someone says it. 
It's not a fact. We have many people in Barbados who say that they know the Lord. The first thing that you encounter when you go to evangelize is, I believe in Jesus. That's the first thing that most Bajans will tell you. I, I believe in God. That, that is the first thing. But John is providing us with some guidelines or some criteria which indicate whether we know God or not. And we ought to know that this knowledge doesn't merely consist in historical facts about Jesus. Our knowledge of him isn't the sum total of true things about God. There are several secular theologians, several secular scholars who know more about Jesus than you probably ever will in your lifetime. Who know, who have greater clarity about his life, about the life of God in Israel, who have greater understanding of these things and in deeper measure. And we could go to the chief pagan, Satan himself, who goes before the throne of God and say, indeed, he has greater theological clarity. He has greater understanding of who God is in his, gravi- in his greatness, in his heaviness, than we will ever know. That isn't what John is primarily aiming at. The proof of that, obvi- obviously, the proof of this that we indeed need to know historical facts about Jesus is seen even in John 14. I'm not saying, of course, that we aren't supposed to know anything about who Jesus is. Our knowledge of God doesn't consist of emotional swooning about the name of Jesus with no idea of who this man is. That isn't the case. Jesus actually rebukes Philip in John chapter 14 because he did not know who he was. Let's, let's turn there for one second. He says in John 14 and beginning at verse 6, just before he was going to be crucified, Jesus was telling the apostles, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus gently rebukes him and says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? So obviously, we are supposed to know things about Jesus. We should know that Jesus is God. We should know that. There are distinctives of Christianity that separate separate our religion from other religions. We're not just one religion that sings Kumbaya with everyone else. That's not the case. We're supposed to know things about God but as Paul Washer once said to grasp these things intellectually is one thing for them to become realities in our life is another doctrine directs us to God but it is not the equivalent or it is not the same as relationship with Jesus Christ this is the means by which we are able to enjoy and delight in fellowship with God And who he is for us. But as I said before, demons and sinners have some measure of theological clarity. Those those aren't the only things that define our knowledge of God. On the contrary, even the newborn believer, the person who has just come to faith by the imperishable word of God, he knows God. He has a closeness and intimacy with God. He says in himself, his heart longs for, with curiosity, 
to be closer and closer to Jesus. He wants to stay at the feet of Jesus. We all know or we've heard of that stage in Christianity where you're almost romantically in love with Jesus. We, we all know that stage where everything you want to do revolves around Jesus. If you don't say Jesus a couple times in your sentence, you feel wrong, you feel icky. We all know that stage in which Jesus is on the tip of our tongues. And in a sense, even though that may not have lasted, in a sense, we understand what it is to be close to God. We understand what it is to have communion with God. This is the, the flow of John's thought as he transitions from telling us about the work of Jesus in verse 2, where he speaks about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, Jesus being the righteous one, Jesus being the advocate for our sins, and saying after that in verse 3, by this we have come to know him. We've come to know him as the propitiation of our sins. We've come to know him as the righteous one, the advocate. We've come to know him as these things. But even more than that, we've come to know him as friend, as king, as elder brother, and the list can go on. Remember, John's implied question is, do you know God in this way? Do you know God as someone who you long to spend time with? Do you know God as someone who you are anxiously awaiting his return? You are anxiously waiting and longing to see the face of Christ. That is what John is getting at. He's not just merely getting at theological clarity, nor is he getting at a mere emotional response to Christ. He's getting at both. He's driving at both. This is what it means to know God. We don't know God in a vacuum that has no data or content, nor do we know God as Stoics who simply have information and it means nothing to them. That is what John is driving at. So, this leads us to our second question. The Apostle lays before us, how can we be assured that we know Him? How can we be assured that the knowledge He is getting at, we indeed possess? And that is really the central focus of our text today. What gives us this confidence that we have come to know God? Well, it's plainly before us. John is claiming that claims to know God, claims to have fellowship with Him, as we saw last week, must be substantiated or confirmed through, through our obedience, his word, pardon me. Brethren, words like carnal Christian are oxymorons. There's something that's floating around now among Christianity where we are considering using terms like homosexual brother. Terms like that are not found here in the Bible. Christians are not characterized by sin. We don't know this person as the lazy Christian. We don't know this person as the violent Christian. That's not the case. If we want to add that prefix to Christianity, just drop the Christianity. Just forget about it. That is not how Christians are identified. We are not known by our sin. In contrast, we're actually known by our obedience. That is why John is so confident that he can say, by this we can know that we know him. If it was that a person could simply live however they liked, and we could just attach the label Christian onto them, we'd actually have no idea who was a Christian and who was not. Church, practical things like church discipline would actually be impossible. 
technically speaking. We can add all the qualifiers we want. We can say there's this example of this person who is struggling with sin. We can say that there's this person who is doing this and they repented. But at the end of the day, we must wrestle with the reality that Christians are characterized by a life of obedience. And this is what gives us confidence before God. There's a sweet, sweet assurance for the saint who is receptive to the will of God, rather than being opposed to the duties that are imposed by the Bible. There's an ease for each of us. I'm sure you know this. There's an ease for each of us when we know after the end of the day and we've rested our heads on our bed, we said, yes, I've served God well today. There's a sense of we are His We have done His will. We are His child and we are growing more and more assured that because we are walking, because we are obeying, because we are consistently having Christ set forth before our minds, that we are at rest, we're at peace. The professing Christian who does not keep the law of God doesn't know this. They will live in turmoil and uncertainty or they will invent a theology To give them assurance in their sin. It's one of the two. They'll either be consistently conflicted in their mind about whether they're saved or not. Or they'll say, well I am saved even though I'm living this way. Because it doesn't matter whether I live this way. They'll invent a theology that suits their particular profession. And this is all too evident in the Beijing context. Too many people play lip service to God as our brother Kamar just said. Too many people dabble trivially with words like I believe in God or I am a Christian while their hearts are far from God. This is the malady that confronted Jesus in his day. Many people, the Pharisees in particular, were saying they knew God. The Jews in their religion were drawing near to him in religious practices. But their hearts, their day after Sunday, they looked like the devil. They they were indistinguishable from any other person in their life. Brethren, superficial conformity is not what's in view here. Obedience to God's commands demands conformity to God's law in every part of our lives. Such is John's determination to make this known that he claims that obedience in our life should look like the pattern of obedience in Jesus' life. John goes so far as to say in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. John is so zealous to make us understand and be clear what our duties are before God. He's willing to lay side by side. Look, this is how Jesus lived. Compare yourself to him. Don't compare yourself to Paul. Don't compare yourself to me. Look at how Jesus lived and measure yourself up against him. Such is his zeal to make us aware of what is required in order that we have this confidence before God. When the apostle is using the term walk, we should think of some consistent action. We should think of some sort of journey in terms of distance. Brethren, we're going somewhere. We're not idly meandering through this life. We're going somewhere. Holiness looks like a consistent progress to a destination. It looks like a pattern of living that increasingly conforms to Christ's own life 
that, that is what we are going towards. And also, the sense that we should get when we look at a journey is that we are actually, over a span of time, inching closer and closer towards this destination. Brethren, I don't know how much time you will have. I don't know how much time I will have. But death will eventually confront us all. All of us will have a dash on a tombstone that says that this person lived between this time and that time. And John is saying the pattern of that time between that dash should be looking like Christ. People should not be looking back on your life and saying, I can't believe that people considered this man a Christian. Somebody shouldn't have to go at your funeral and be fumbling around to figure out how best to describe this man. Well, he was a good churchgoer. He used to beat his wife. But, you know, at times he would show up early to work. That isn't the sense in which we're supposed to be getting here. We're supposed to understand that Christ indeed was evident in this man. That the savor of Christ was upon this man. Over the length of our days, the pattern of our lives, the habits which people can point to, or what others will associate us with, should bear resemblance to Jesus' life. Our lives are not lived autonomously. John says clearly, it is the person who keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. We are not supposed to think that once we come to faith, pardon me, once we come to faith, that after our profession, there's nothing else to be done. We aren't supposed to think that. In our day-to-day actions, our decisions, whether it be a job, whether it be how we spend our leisure, whether it be how we decide to entertain ourselves, that these things are outside of the scope of Jesus' commands in the scripture. The Bible addresses all of life. All of your life is supposed to be conformed to the pattern of Jesus. How you rest, it would be good if people were to say, well, how that man rests is how Jesus rests. That, that is the sense that we're supposed to get here. Obviously, I'm exaggerating because we don't know how Jesus slept. But that is the sense that we're supposed to get here. The intentions of our hearts and our priorities should be regulated by God's word. But adherence to God's commands aren't superficial, as I said. They're supposed to be shape our entire lives. And what is underneath this, what undergirds it, is a heart disposition and motivation, one of love. As we transition from verse 3, where John is speaking about knowing him involved, necessarily involves keeping his commandments, as we transition there to verse 6, where I was speaking about keeping his word involves the love of God being perfected in a believer, we see that obedience to God's commands is nothing less than the love of God being perfected in us. The term love of God is slightly ambiguous here. We don't necessarily have a precise understanding from the text where this love is originating from. Is John speaking about God's love for us? Or is John speaking about our love for God? It's slightly ambiguous. Most commentators go either side. If John's meaning is that the love originates from God, he means that God's love for us is completed 
or brought to its intended end when we obey his commandments. And if it originates from us, it means our love for God is completed when we obey his command. Whichever way you interpret it, however, keeping God's commands requires the love of God and the love of neighbor. This is how the entire summary of the Decalogue Jesus points to. The two great commandments, love your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is very similar to it, love your neighbor as yourself. By this we can see that Christianity is not merely an external observance of rules and regulations. He isn't saying, well, Jesus commanded you not to kill that guy. Or Jesus commanded you merely to preserve the life of that guy. He's saying, undergirding or underlying these commands is that you should feel affectionately towards God and you should feel affectionately towards people. He's not merely speaking about formalities. And what God requires of us, he claims, is nothing new. As we see in verse 7, when he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. He's stating that the moral law was written on Adam's heart. From the beginning, this law existed. A Jew would say at Sinai, he understood the moral law in its summary. From the immediate context though, John is limiting his reference to the commandment to the love of the brethren. Verses 9 to 11 clearly indicate that when John is saying that we have to obey the commands, what he has particularly in view is the love of the saints. Clearly associating walking in light as we see here in verse 9, whoever says he walks in the light and hates his brothers in darkness. And then also before the commandment that he's ordering us to keep, he's clearly making the two synonymous. He's drawing an equivalency between keeping God's commands and loving our brothers. But the Old Testament has expressed that our duty is to love our neighbor. And not only that, John's audience has likely heard this before. So then how can John say that the commandment is old and new at the same time? I don't think that John, working or writing through the help of the Holy Spirit, is presenting us with a contradiction. I, I think we can say at the least that's not what's going on here. According to Alexander McLaren, he's alerting us to at least two things. The newness of the motivation for the commandment and the newness of the example of the commandment. If you recall, Jesus said similar words to the apostles. In John 13, 34 to verse 35, he says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It is a new commandment because the motivation for adhering to this command before was bound to how you as an individual want should be treated. So in Leviticus 19 verse 18, God said to Moses, Do not bear a grudge on people but love your neighbor as yourself. But now, Jesus calls us to a higher standard. It's not about me. It's not about how I want to be treated. 
I'm, I'm called to love people as Christ has loved myself. I'm called to love the brethren as Christ has loved myself. It isn't about the fact that I don't require a certain level of affection to me. It's not about my own subjectivity in terms of how I personally want to be treated. That isn't the case. Jesus is, Jesus is calling us to love others, to love the brethren in particular as he has loved them. That is the newness in the motivation. But also tied to this is the newness of the example. Brethren, Jesus has died for the saints. Jesus has been stripped naked and beaten with, with cords on his back for the saints. Jesus has been spat on. Jesus has been mocked. They, they tore off his robe and they asked him, who beat him? That is what Christ has willingly accepted on behalf of the saints. So when we see love the brethren as I, has, I have loved you, this is the example, this is the newness of the example that the Old Testament saints weren't able to enjoy. Sure, they were able to see God bearing long with them, but they had not yet seen a man who was willing to endure even the cross for their sakes. This is the sacrificial, peculiar love that Jesus is calling us to have for the saints. We must remember that Jesus so identifies himself with his people that when speaking about the final judgment in Matthew 25, he says, to give to the least of these brethren is to give to myself. We are united to Christ. We are his people. Christ is our elder brother king and our head so our impulse brothers and sisters what our hearts ought to lead to do is to run in service for those who Christ has died for he has not counted his own body as too worthy too costly to give up for those who died for, for those he died for pardon me how then can we seek not to give our temporal treasures which fade with passing in service to our brothers how can you look at Christ and see that he has died and know that his body was of infinite worth and look at your brother who Christ identifies with so closely that he says, if you give to him, you give even to me. How can you look at him and say, well, I'm not giving you anything? How can you show him such hatred? Would you look at Christ? Would you behold Christ himself and say, in his need, I'm not giving you anything? That is the equivalent that is what John is saying that you would be doing. If it is, you do not love the brethren. You would indeed be blind. You would indeed not have known Christ himself. A drop of Jesus' blood, the very hair on his body, is of immeasurable worth. And yet Christ willingly sacrificed them for men. If we fail to display this kindness, this great grace and goodness to our brothers, how then can we testify that we know Jesus? How can we say that we know God if it is that in their time of need, whether it is financially, whether it is emotionally, whether it is spiritually, we say, well, I see you in need, but I have other things to do. How can we then look upon them and say that I have fellowship, I know God? You can't have those two proclamations at the same time. 
If we are unable to sacrifice our time for our brothers, we have no right to attest that the true knowledge of God abides within us. Brothers and sisters, that is why we are supposed to use our talents and our gifts, not only our treasures, but our talents and our gifts for the brethren. Those who work, we are supposed to work chiefly, primarily, for the church. We are supposed to work chiefly and primarily for the church. Your family and then the church and then the world. That, that, is, that is the pecking order that John is pointing us to. We're supposed to love the brothers peculiarly. He doesn't say this primarily about the world. Though we are, yes, supposed to love the world. But John is pointing us to a peculiar love, a peculiar grace that we're supposed to show towards the brethren. We're supposed to have godly jealousy to see our brothers succeed. We're supposed to feel a way about our brothers progressing in the Christian life. If it is that you're utterly unconcerned with a brother's state of affairs in this life, it only testifies to where you are at spiritually. That is what John is pointing to. If it is that in a brother's time of plight that you are unconcerned, it points to the reality That the knowledge of God does not abide within you. So we should ask ourselves, have you concern for the saints? Are you primarily self-interested and concerned with your own affairs? We ought to be honoring Christ himself by promoting the very evidences that display our knowledge of God. To do otherwise is to show contempt for God's people who he calls beloved. That is what it is to do. It is to treat as common what Christ has deemed as precious to him. Let us add to our confession that we know God, this peculiar love to our brethren, that Jesus says will demonstrate that we are his disciples. Personally, within this church, I feel very close to even the farthest member of our church, oddly enough. The persons who support you, the persons who would message you, the persons who would call you up in your time of need. I have personally experienced that in my own life. And I pray and I plead that as we do so, all the more that we would show this same grace, that we would show this same love and tenderness to the brethren. Now, brothers, as I conclude, I would like to draw attention to verses 12 to 14. After recounting the duties that John enjoins to Christians, he then writes and reminds believers of the great confidence that he has for them. It isn't that John is writing this letter because he's afraid that the believers are going to fall away. John actually understands the doctrine of eternal security. He wrote it in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. He actually understands this. He's he's not confused about whom God will save and keep. He's not confused in his mind. But this serves to ensure that believers have confidence in the work of God in their lives. John, the apostle, is telling them that God has done these things on their behalf. So he's writing that they may understand that they have firm standing in Christ and that they have eternal life. Within this portion of the text, John's immediate recipients 
for each of these exhortations isn't quite exactly clear. He speaks of fathers, then young men, then little children. And several commentators have said, well, that's referring to maturity. When he speaks about fathers, it's not necessarily about age. Some people say it relates to age. Some people say it relates to a combination of both. To be honest, I don't know. I leave that in your capable hands if you want to research it. I'm really not sure, to be honest. But based on what he is saying, irrespective of the audience that he is getting this message towards, these are consoling words which God is trying to communicate to his people. As you may notice, John recounts a very similar exhortation to each category. He begins with his affectionate statement concerning little children. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He's not writing because he thinks these people are pagans who are under the wrath of God. He's not writing because he thinks that these people are running rampant and doing sins and they need to be kept in check. That isn't the case. He's writing because your sins have been laid on the cross of Christ. He has forgiven them all. We are loved as we stand before God in all our personal sin because of his atoning sacrifice. Also, he writes about our knowledge of God. He's saying that God has revealed himself to us and we know him. He's not confused about whether we know him or not. John obviously would have had personal interaction with this church and would have been able to attest to the fact that these people had some understanding Not only a theological clarity, but they love the God who John preached to them. They love the God who had come and bled and died so that their sins had been forgiven. And we have come to know also the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We also at CRBC have, because of God's grace and the work of the Spirit, have become greater and greater aware, greater and greater Uh, in love with the Christ who has borne our sins. And lastly, as I said last week, John is pointing to the fact that we will overcome. The false teaching that was happening, John was quite clear that these people are not going to be receptive. These people are not going to be easily swayed by. These people are not going to be deceived by these false teachers. He's saying that we have overcome. He's pointing to the fact that these people are solidly, firmly rooted in true and pure doctrine of Christ. That is what he's pointing us towards. He's not pointing us or giving us this letter because he's confused or because he's afraid that God's people will fall away. He's given us this letter because he's assured that the love of Christ abides in us and that we will indeed overcome Satan and those false prophets which he has sent. Richard Baxter offers a helpful summary of this portion of the letter. He says, In our first paradise in Eden, there was a way to go out, but no way to go back in. But as for the heavenly paradise, there is a way to go in, but not a way to go out. God has saved us, and guaranteed that his people will make it all the way home. And he sends this letter to assure us, to grant us confidence of this fact, this reality. Those of you awaiting his return can be assured of this. 
and those not yet trusting in His work, God freely offers these same benefits to us. He freely gives them as long as we will turn from our sin and lay hold of the righteousness that only Christ can provide through His sin-bearing death and His life-giving resurrection. And I pray all the more that we will strive and learn to trust in Christ and the atoning work He has done on our behalf.